In chapters 12, 13, and 14, we are talking about uh, spiritual gifts and supernatural spiritual manifestations and spiritual offices that God has ordained, all that are manifested through this entity that we call the church. In the Old Testament, there was uh, um, uh, a work that God was doing amongst his people um, that was in many ways a prefiguring of what it is that we enjoy spiritually. And so we read about how Moses took the people uh, through the Red Sea and, and set them free from Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And along the way, there were various things that God had them do. There was the Ark of the Covenant that was constructed and then the tabernacle of meeting, the tent that they would take with them from place to place. And all of the various articles uh, of that portable worship center that they would carry. And every one of those things was significant, uh, not just for their worship then, but also by way of looking forward to what it represented in the eternal picture of things. One of those things that God uh, um, made in that day was the clothing that would be upon the high priest. And the high priest was a representation of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he is our one mediator or one great high priest, the one that stands between God and men for reconciliation. And so the priest represented Christ. And the garments that he wore represented the covering that Jesus has over his body, that is, you and I. And so the high priest's robes, linen and white, represent our righteousness, the righteousness of the saints. That's you and me. Now, on the border of that garment, way down at the bottom of that robe, there was a very interesting thing that God told Moses, be sure you include. And that was this, that around the border, all the way around, they were to hang from the hem a bell and then a pomegranate and then a bell and then a pomegranate and then a bell, and then a pomegranate, all the way around the perimeter of the base of that robe. And you think, well, how ridiculous must it have felt to be the high priest walking around constantly and wearing that upon his garment? Why did God do it? Was it to keep the high priest humble? It wasn't. It was a representation of what his body would carry, the clothing, the covering. And what is it that you and I are to have in our lives? We are to have gifts of the Holy Spirit and fruit of the Holy Spirit. And those two things work in tandem. One of those things is a noisemaker, if you would, as one would use their gifts. But the reason for it is always the fruit that it accompanies, that is edifying, that serves a purpose. And so as we've been talking about this, we've looked at gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we've looked at gifts as the purpose or having the purpose of bringing forth fruit that we would give to edify someone else in whatever context God might use us, but that both of those things must work in tandem. So as we come now to this passage of scripture, what we have is we have a chapter about gifts, chapter 12, and then a chapter about fruit, chapter 13, all about love. And now as we come to chapter 14, we have another chapter about gifts. So you can picture it in your mind this way. Chapter 12 is a bell, chapter 13, a pomegranate, and chapter 14, a bell again, as Paul breaks back into now the subject of spiritual gifts. And what he does is he narrows in on two gifts specifically, and that would be the greatest and arguably, in some ways, the least. Two very contrasting gifts, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. And he explains their proper use and their proper context and their value and why they're important and uh, why we should be so desiring of having them. Now, what this chapter does, what it serves for you and I, is that it demystifies spiritual, mysterious things. I don't think there's anything more mysterious or more peculiar than the gift of tongues. And if you've ever been exposed to it in any way and you weren't familiar with it and didn't know what it was, you were probably caught off guard and you're like, what in the world is this? Am I even in the presence of something Christian that's going on right here? It's such a mysterious and mystical thing. And so what this chapter does, like no other place in the Bible, is it demystifies that mysterious and peculiar thing that God 
has given to the church. And so Paul begins in verse 1. And he says to us here, following up from the, uh, the previous chapter, he says, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. Now, don't pass over the first three words of that chapter, which say, follow after charity. That is, the pursuit of our life or the aim of our Christian experience is not to be that we be the most gifted or that we even discover and use our gifts in some great way. But the aim and focus of our Christian experience is that we would be those that would possess divine agape love, both for God and for man. And that can only come from God. And I challenge you tonight, right at the beginning of our Bible study, to ask yourself the question, is that the aim and the focus of my life? As I pursue God, as I seek him in prayer daily, as I come to church and to Bible study, as I seek to cultivate godliness within my life, is that on the forefront of what I want, that I want to be a loving person, someone who manifests and gives away the love of God to those within my life? I'll tell you, it took me a little while to get past those three words in my preparation. The hurdle that I had to climb and just say, God, forgive me for how I've made so many other things the emphasis and I've forgotten the most important thing. But if we make this our aim, not only do we reach the highest, but we get everything else thrown in in between. And so he says, follow after love, but at the same time also desire spiritual gifts. Gifts are the means of bringing forth love without ruining it or in a safe way. If our flesh in any way tries to minister or give away the things of God, or we try to give away the things of God in the power of our flesh, that we're going to defile it and ruin it and taint the person of God in, in someone's mind or in their experience. And so he says, desire spiritual gifts, but rather the priority in seeking spiritual gifts is that you might prophesy. For he that speaks... And here's the contrast, the other gift that they were seeking and that most Christians would have a tendency to put their focus on. He says, for he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God, for no man understands him, howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification, to exhortation, and to comfort. And so the first gift that he mentions right there is the gift of prophecy. He says that rather that you might prophesy. Now to prophesy or to exercise the gift of prophecy is simply to speak forth under divine inspiration. That is that in some way as you're speaking for the Lord, he uses what you're saying in some supernatural way to reach into someone's life and to speak to a person through you. And so it's a gift of God using you to speak into someone else's life, to prophesy. It's the same thing that was taking place with the prophets in the Old Testament. It says that they didn't write according to their whims. It says, but holy men of God wrote or spoke as they were moved of the Holy Ghost. There was a prophetic element in the thing that they were doing, and God was in it. And it's the same thing that happens in New Testament context when someone prophesies or speaks in the name of the Lord. Now, the difference, and there is a difference between a prophet in the Old Testament or a prophecy in the Old Testament and a prophet in the New Testament or prophecy in the New Testament. And the big difference is, first of all, that what we have now that they didn't have then is that we have the complete Bible. If you read at the very end of the book of Revelation, which is at the very end of the Bible, it says that we are forbidden to add anything to the words of the book of this prophecy. That is, Scripture is absolutely complete. There is nothing that can be added to Scripture, and there's nothing that can be spoken or said that is on parallel authority with the Scriptures. They stand alone in and of themselves. And so though God might use you or use me in some way to speak into someone's life, and it can be from him and legitimate, it does not carry the same weight as scripture. Scripture always outweighs it. And what that does for us is that it gives us something 
to test the prophecy against. That is, if someone is claiming to speak in the name of the Lord, and you want to know in some way, is this from God? You can weigh it against the Bible, the word of God. And if it is in alignment with what God has already spoken in his word, or in harmony with it, then you can say, amen. That could be from you, Lord. Thank you. But if in any way it's contradicted by the things that are in the Bible, by precept or by specific verse and chapter, then you can throw it away and say, I know for a fact that that was not of God, no matter how, how mystical the moment was, no matter how spiritual it seemed, no matter how sincere the speaker was. If there isn't harmony with the Bible, it is not true. It's not true prophecy. And so there's a difference in that way between the Old and the New Testament and that the Bible is a guide. The Apostle Paul praised a group of people that were known as the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. And the reason he praised them is because they didn't take his words at face value, but they weighed them against the Old Testament scriptures to see if the things that Paul was saying were legitimate. And Paul said, I praise you in this that you search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. And that should always be our mentality. The Bible is safe. Man isn't safe until he dies and didn't do anything stupid in his life. That's the kind of my guideline. You know, that's not in the Bible either. But, you know, we can always trust the scripture, but we cannot always trust men. And so that's prophecy. The second gift that he brings up there is the gift of tongues. In the Greek, the word that's employed for tongues is the word glossa. And what it literally means is a language naturally unacquired. That is a language that God gives to a person that they did not learn in some school or by some book or were taught it in some way. They acquired a language, but they did not acquire it in a natural way. It's a supernatural manifestation. Now you say, that freaks me out having been around it or even having hearing you say that, I don't understand how that's even possible. Well, it might bring you a little bit of comfort to know that Jesus did say that it would happen. In Mark chapter 16, one of the last things that Jesus said before ascending to the Father in verse 15, Jesus said this, and he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved but he that believes not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues, new languages. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Jesus said that it would happen. Now it wasn't long after, only about 10 days or so after Jesus spoke this, that the events that took place in Acts chapter 2 took place. Let me read to you from there what happened on the day that the Holy Spirit fell out and how this speaking in tongues or this glossa, this naturally unoccurring language, happened uh, in the narrative. It says this. It says that as they were there, it says that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. It's on the day of Pentecost, the first day of the church. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it came from the spirit. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded or amazed because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? So in this instance, the language that God was giving to them were languages of other places in the Roman Empire that the people speaking them didn't know. And then it lists 18 different uh, localities that people were from in that place. And then notice in verse 11, it says, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues, our languages, the wonderful works of God. And mark that in your mind, what it is that they heard, the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, what does this mean? We see it happen again a little bit further into the book of Acts when Peter, the apostle, was led to the house of one man, a Gentile named Cornelius, the first 
Gentile to be saved in the church. And as he was there and preaching the word to him, it says in Acts 10.44 that while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision, the Jews, which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, and then answered Peter, and he went on to uh, continue his discourse. But notice again that tongues were spoken by the household of Cornelius, and that the content of those tongues was praise or magnification towards the Lord. Again in Acts chapter 19, when the apostle Paul passed through the region of Ephesus. And he found some disciples there that were following John the Baptist. And as he questioned them concerning their baptism and what it is that they believed, he straightened them out about a few things that they were lacking in their understanding of the gospel. And it tells us as a result of that in verse 6, 19, uh, 6, it says that when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them and they spoke with tongues and they prophesied, and all the men that were there were about 12. And so we see that this isn't something that's new to this verse that we read in 1 Corinthians here, where Paul simply brings it up and says, oh yeah, uh, there's a gift of tongues. We see that Jesus spoke about it, and then it's carefully documented throughout the book of Acts uh, that it happened, that this was something that God the Holy Spirit poured out and gave to the church. And now Paul, what he seeks to do here is to simply explain and give us understanding as to what this is and how it is to work in the lives of a believer. Now I want you to see what it says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, in its first mention of the gift of tongues and what it says about it. Notice again with me. He says, for he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. Uh, understand in our understanding or in our, our pursuit to understand these things, the very first thing that you need to know about someone who speaks in a tongue is that they are not speaking to men. They are speaking to God. That's what's happening in that. Now, one of the most common misuses of the gift of tongues that you'll see in the body of Christ is that you'll sit in a service that's probably a little bit more Pentecostal than what you'll experience at Calvary Chapel uh, on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. And you'll hear someone in the service just begin to speak out in tongues. And they'll, you know, start, you know, just talking about how they bought a Hyundai, but they should have bought a Honda. I bought a Hyundai, but I should have bought a Honda, you know. And they'll go off and they'll say, oh, I hurt my shin and my knees. I hurt my shin and my knees, my shin and my knees, my shin, you know. And they, they you know, they get going. And, and then what happens is that when they finally stop after the whole church is gawking at the person that's standing up in the middle of the service, someone else in the service will stand up and they'll say, thus saith the Lord. I am pleased with you, my children, because you are waiting upon me, or I'm grieved with you, and you, you know, and they go into this whole thing, and then the thing ends, and you think, okay, well, what I just heard is I just heard someone over here speak in tongues, and I heard someone over here give an interpretation of what that tongue is. No, that's a violation of what God says the gift of tongues is. The gift of tongues is not God speaking to men, it is man speaking to God. And every time that we see it in the scripture, that's the direction that it's going. What did they say in Acts chapter 2? It says, we all do hear them speak in our language the wonderful works of God. They were praising God for his greatness and for his works and who he was. What does it say concerning Cornelius and his house? It says that they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Paul is going to say in a few verses a little bit later on concerning the tongues, he says, you might be giving thanks well, but the person who doesn't know that language doesn't know that and can't say amen to it. So Paul equates it with a giving of thanks. And so the direction of tongues is always from earth to heaven. And so what tongues is, is a prayer language. It's something that God gives to people to be able to pray. Notice what he goes on to say in the second half of verse two. He says, for no man understands him, howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. 
That is, that when a person is exercising the prayer language that God has given to him, they are speaking things out that are even unknown to them. Now you say, well, why in the world would God do that? In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer uh, to that question in his letter to the Romans. And he says it this way in, in chapter 8, verse 26. He says this. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities or our weaknesses or our blind spots. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And so when a person exercises their prayer language and speaks in tongues, and usually it's exercised in the privacy of their devotional life, as we will see why as we move through this chapter, they come to a place in their walk or in their prayer time where they don't know how to pray. They're lost for words for whatever reason. And what God has done is he has made a way for that person to pray in that instance, even though they don't know how to pray as they ought, but they feel they have a need to pray or a desire to pray, the spirit that lives inside who knows both the mind of God and the fullness of every situation speaks from within in words that are given to us only by him and we're able then to intercede in a mysterious and very mystical way. And that is what the gift of tongues is. That's what Paul is talking about. He speaks mysteries in the spirit. Now to contrast that, he moves on in verse three to say this. He says, but he that prophesies speaks unto men. Now, if you want to, you can just go through and you can circle in your Bible in verse two, you could circle the words speaketh unto God. And in verse three, circle the words speaketh unto men because you have a very clear contrast there between which direction uh, these two gifts operate. Tongues is from man to God. Prophecy is from God to men. So he that prophesies speaks unto men, and for this cause, for edification, that is to build up, exhortation, that is to stir up, and comfort, that is to lift up. Now, Back to the illustration of the church service where the person speaks with tongues and the other person uh, gives the interpretation and says, thus saith. Now, it is quite possible that someone could speak in a tongue and that someone else then could give a prophecy. The two things aren't connected, though both things might be very real. So the prophecy comes directly from God. Now, I just want you to think about this for just one moment. Is God so confused that in order to get a message to his people, he must first give someone a gift of tongues and that they must speak out so everyone can see and hear. And then he's got to give someone else the interpretation of that tongue so that he can get the message of the prophecy across to the people that he's seeking to reach in the first place. God is not Barnum and Bailey. God is God. And he knows how to help us in our infirmities when we need to pray. And he knows how to get a message to us when he needs to get a message to us. And so he's provided these gifts in their respective order to accomplish those two very separate but very necessary things. He that prophesies speaks to, to men for edification, for exhortation, and then also uh, for comfort. And so here's what he says now in verse four. He says, he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. Now this is the only spiritual manifestation or gift that God gives to a Christian for the sake of self-edification. Every other gift or manifestation is for the sake of edifying or building up someone else. But this one is God gives for the sake of the individual. And then he says, but he that prophesies edifies also the church. And so uh, tongues to God, prophecy to men. And then he goes on in verse five to say, I would that you all spoke with tongues. Now what that tells me is that it's possible for everyone to speak with tongues. Not everyone does. Paul made that clear at the end of chapter 12. He said, do all speak with tongues? And the rhetorical answer, no, not everyone does and not everyone will. But Paul said, I would that all of you did, but rather, he says, even higher priority than that, that you prophesied. 
For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues, except he interpret that the church might receive edifying. And so everyone can receive the gift of tongues, but not everyone will. Now, I remember as a new believer, we went to a Calvary Chapel Uh, Georgia and I very early in our walk with God and we were learning the Bible line upon line precept upon precept and at one point in in that um, Bible education we came across this concept and I remember sitting and hearing these things and being completely mystified by by the idea and the concept of this it was so far from my uh, um, reality I'm a very cranial very uh, reasonable uh, almost scientifically minded type of person And so the idea of a language imparted that you speak, but yet you don't even understand while you're speaking it, but yet it's given to you by God, it just kind of interested me uh, the same way it would interest anybody um, that thinks about it in that context, in that light. Like, what's the story? What's the deal? And I remember asking God and just saying, God, I see this in your word, and I see that you've ordained it and that you have a cause for it. And if this is something, Lord, that you would want to give to me, to benefit me and what I need as a Christian, then I'm willing to walk in anything that you would have for me. And I began to ask God to just give to me a prayer language if that was his will for my life. And I remember on a particular occasion, we were in, in a church service. It was a midweek service. And afterwards, the pastor said, you know, we're going to sing a few extra songs tonight and just wait upon the Lord and worship. And I remember sitting right in the front row. And as we were there and just worshiping, Uh, God and the simplicity of the way that God does things just began to give to me a prayer language, a way that I could uh, pray in that way. And I remember just being so blessed and so excited and so uh, overflowing just with gratitude and and with thanks. And there was an edification that was taking place with me in that moment. And that's a prayer language that I've carried with me ever since that time that I exercise in my devotional life uh, as needed. And and I would encourage you tonight that if you're a person and you would say, God, if there's a gift that you have for me, something that's in the Bible that I can experience, and Lord, I'm open to what it is that you would have to give me. And God might do it for you. Now, when I look at this and think about these things, I, I stop and look from eagle eye perspective and I say, okay, God, you're very wise and you know all things and you see all things. And you see the incredible controversy that this particular issue has stirred up in your church for 2,000 years. And you've seen all of the division that it has caused. And you've seen all of the strife and all of the backbiting and fighting and all of the misuse and abuse of these things and all of the profiteering and one-upmanship that has taken place because of, of this particular gift. Was there at all any point, Lord, where you just thought maybe about scrapping this whole idea? That we just thought it isn't worth it, you know, with, with all, I mean, we could just leave that one out and we'll do it in another way. But he didn't. He gave it and he put it. And the reason why he gave it, first of all, is because he knew that there would be times in the life of a believer that we would absolutely need to pray. In fact, the Bible commands us to pray, doesn't it? Jesus didn't say, if you pray, say our Father. He said, when you pray say our father. And the Bible commands us explicitly in in every part, every place that we are to pray. But God knew and knows, and we know certainly, that there are times that we feel a desperate need to pray, to seek God, that we have to be in his presence. God, I need to be refreshed by you. But I am so burned out mentally, and I do not have the faculties or the capacity to formulate the words of a prayer in your presence right now. So what God did is that he made a way for a believer to pray in the most fruitful and effective way it's possible for a believer to pray in a time when they cannot absolutely conjure up words and thoughts and put them together for the sake of praying. And God provided that in the gift of tongues. The other reason why God gave it to us in spite of all the trouble that it would cause is because he knows the power that praise yields in the life of a believer or in a given situation or atmosphere. Throughout the Bible, we see the effects that worship has on a person or on a situation. In every instance that the children of Israel went forth to battle, Judah, the tribe of Judah, would always go first. Judah meant praise. And the reason why praise always would go before the battle is because it would bring the enemies and the armies of the enemy into confusion. 
And anytime praise is offered before God, it causes darkness to dispel and light to break forth. And God knows the power and the dynamic that praise has in our lives and in our circumstances. And so he's made a way for us to praise when our heart might not feel praise or be engaged in praise in the most effective way. And so God said, yeah, I see all that's going to happen and all the abuse and fighting, but it's still worth it. And it's still something that I'm going to give to my people. But now Paul says, this is the proper use of that gift. It isn't to be used to parade oneself and their blessed spirituality in the presence of all their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not something to be shown off and to be used as a merit badge that you place upon your Christian uh, vest that, yes, I am, in fact, baptized in the Holy Spirit or I have, in fact, achieved this level of spirituality where that is not the purpose of it at all in any way. So what does Paul say about this uh, gift of tongues? And he makes an argument why prophecy is more important than tongues. And the very first reason why prophecy is more important than tongues is because prophecy makes sense to a person who hears it and tongues does not. Notice in verse six, he says, now brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation, that's something that was previously unknown that now is known, or by knowledge, something that you previously didn't know or have and now you do, or by prophesying information that's imparted from heaven, or by doctrine, teaching, the impartation of spiritual truth. He says, if I come speaking in tongues, I give you nothing. I must bring you something that makes sense. And then an illustration, even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, Except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? I mean, if we hear, we all know what that means, right? Or if we hear, right, see, there was a distinction in the tone And thus you're able to respond intelligently based upon what you know and can receive by way of the impartation of information. He says, for if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? So likewise you, except you utter by the tongue words easy to be understood. How shall it be known what is spoken? For you shall speak into the air. For there are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaks a barbarian, and he that speaks shall be a barbarian unto me. That is, a foreigner. Paul says there are countless languages that are spoken within the world, but unless I understand and speak those languages, someone could speak them all day long, but it benefits me absolutely nothing. And so when you come together as a church, unless there's edification through the impartation of giving to you something that's going to edify and build you up, then what you are hearing is of absolutely no profit or benefit to you whatsoever. And so it must make sense. Second of all, it should reach the level of the understanding. Notice in verse 12, he said, even so you, for as much as you are zealous for spiritual gifts, Seek that you might excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaks in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. And now if you go back to 1 Corinthians 12, you'll see that one of the manifestation gifts that's listed there is the gift of the interpretation of tongues. Notice that it's not a translation. There's no one that can listen to someone speak in a tongue write down what they said, and then word for word say, this word means this, and this word. It's not a translation, it's an interpretation. You all know what that's like. You ever watched someone on TV speaking in a different language? An interview, like a political commentary, or something going back and forth with a translator, and they go, and they go on for like five minutes. And then the, the person who's translating says, I would be a better candidate. And then they look back, and you're like, They need to simplify their language a little bit. You know, it's not a translation. It's an interpretation. You know, it's summing up what it is. He says, so if someone's going to speak in in an unknown tongue, then let him pray that he might also interpret. 
For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, right here, we have one of the greatest hurdles that most Christians have with the gift of tongues. And Paul hits us right in the face with it. He spells it out. He says, my understanding is unfruitful, which means this, that if I'm going to exercise the gift of tongues or a prayer language that God would give me, I must circumvent my intellect, meaning that I'm not going to understand what I'm doing or what I'm saying. I am by faith taking God at his word that his spirit is interceding in ways that I don't know and that I don't understand. And for someone like me, that's an incredibly large hurdle to get over because I'm a very intellectual type of person in the way that I calculate thoughts. And so as I exercise the prayer language, oftentimes there's a voice right behind my speaking that way saying, you are a moron. You're speaking, are you you really, do you really think? And I have to exercise faith beyond that and say, yes, because God says. And so he says, my My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then, he says? I will pray, Paul says, with the spirit. And there was no one more intellectual than Paul, by the way. And I will pray with the understanding. I will do both. Also, I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. Otherwise, he says, when you shall bless with the spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned or untaught Say amen at the giving of thanks. So again, equating thankfulness with tongues, prayer language. Seeing he understands not what you say. In other words, if someone doesn't understand the tongue, they can't say amen. If you're sitting in a service where someone is speaking Portuguese and they're preaching the Bible and you only speak English, you can't in the middle of the service just say amen on that. Because you don't speak Portuguese. You don't know what's being said. So Paul says, if I'm going to speak in tongues and I don't bring the translation or the interpretation with it, then your understanding is unfruitful and you have not been edified. Verse 17, for verily you give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Now in verse 18, notice what Paul says. I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than you all. And Paul was able to confidently affirm that not even knowing the full totality of the audience that he was addressing. That he must have used his prayer language so frequently and so vastly that he could say this so boldly. Now, he's not saying it to boast in some way as though they would know that he's more spiritual than them. He's encouraging them to exercise the gift and to use it well and in the right way. Now, another thing is that they would probably be shocked to hear this. Because many of them, though they had spent time with Paul, probably never heard him speak out in tongues once in their entire relationship or interaction with him. And it would come as a shock for them to hear this. Like, wait, Paul, you speak in tongues all the time? We were with you for a year and a half and we never once heard you speak out in this way. Because for Paul, it was between him and the Lord. Now, maybe they did. I guess I'm speculating a little bit there. But he says, I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice, I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So if you can line up just five words in in the common language of everyone who's present and 10,000 words in a tongue, Paul says, I would elect to use the five words that everyone knows. People, God loves you dearly. And for Paul, that would be more of an edifying service. And he would feel as though he did more by the Spirit of God and accomplished more for the Spirit of God in that service by just simply uttering those five words than by spending a whole entire hour speaking in tongues uh, in the presence of all of them. Though everyone would leave that second service that day and they would say, that was crazy. That was a cool church. We're going back there next week. Maybe someone will bite the head off a snake, you know, or something like that, you know. But Paul would look at those two services and he would say that the five words with the understanding are way more beneficial than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. And so he concludes this concept of understanding in verse 20 by saying, brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice, in evil, be children, but in understanding be men. Grow up spiritually. 
in relationship to these things Paul is saying. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, but don't misuse and abuse and make it something that it absolutely is not. The purpose of the church gathering together is for the edification of the saints. Now, the third reason why prophecy trumps tongues or, or is super, um, superseded over the gift of tongues is because of the witness that it gives to unbelievers that might be present in the meeting. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 21. He says, in the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, will I speak unto this people? And yet for all that, they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, that is believers that are all gathered together like most of us are here tonight, but to them that believe not, unbelievers, those that are on the outside that are still looking into this whole Christian experience. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, the unbeliever, but for them which believe. Now you say, wait a minute. It seems like there's a contradiction here, doesn't it? I mean, Paul just quoted an Old Testament verse that says, with men of other tongues and stammering lips, will I speak to this people? Didn't you say that tongues are from man to God and not God to men? So how is God speaking to men through tongues as it says in this verse? Listen, it isn't the tongue, the speaking forth and the words that are being used that is what God is speaking to the unbeliever. It's the fact that the tongue is being spoken. That is how God is representing himself to those people. We see that illustrated in the book of Acts in chapter two. We see them speaking in tongues and God giving interpretation to those that are hearing according to the languages that they knew. And they heard the wonderful works of God and notice the effect of it. It says that they said, what does this mean? How that these all speak that are Galileans, but we hear them speak in our own language. There was something taking place so supernaturally spiritual and so evidently real, even in the mind of the unbeliever that was there present, that it caused them to inquire and say, there's something legitimate about this, though we don't understand what it is, and it caused them to inquire further and ask the questions that then led to them hearing the gospel clearly shared by Peter so that they could respond and get saved. Similar instance that happened in the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. It says that they heard them speak and magnify God. Therefore, it's for a sign, listen, tongues in this instance, for those that might be present that are familiar or acquainted with the group and are comfortable in it. And as they hear it, they say, I don't know what this is, but there must be something to this. Otherwise, my goodness. Now, we know it isn't in a generic sense because of what Paul's going to go on to say next. Notice in verse 23. He says, if therefore the whole church become together into one place. So that's like what we're doing now. We're on a Sunday morning. And all speak with tongues. And there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers. Will they not say that you are mad? out of your mind. Now, if you've ever been in that service, you know exactly what Paul is talking about here. And no doubt, sometime in Paul's uh, life, he was in one of those services as well. When he went in and everyone was just speaking in tongues and you go, what in the world is this? And if you're an unbeliever, what you're thinking to yourself is you're thinking, I, I'm okay with God. I might even be okay with the Bible. I might even be okay with Jesus. I am not okay with these people and what they're doing right now <laughs> because this is just wacky. And if this is what the way God wants to be worshipped, he may be all good and well and all, but this is not for me. These people are out of their mind. By the way, let me say this, is that the only time in the book of Acts that you will find a person speaking out in tongues in a public setting is the first time that they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they receive the gift of tongues. You'll never see it otherwise. You'll never see it in a prayer meeting where the, where the disciples are gathered together and it says that they were all you know, gathering for prayer and speaking in tongues together. It's always only used outwardly when it comes upon a person for the first time in the book of Acts. And in that instance, it's a very good sign for someone who looks standing next to you. I came to church with you and what in the world are you doing? 
and then to ride home in the car with that person. Are you okay, Jim? You know? And they could say, yeah, I don't know what it was, but God came upon my life so powerfully and the overflow of his spirit in my life was so powerful, that's what came out. I opened my mouth to sing or to speak and that's, that's what was there. He gave to me a prayer language and they can speak to that person, a sign for the unbeliever, not in the general assembly. They will say that you are mad. You're out of your mind if that's what's going on within your church service. Everyone's making noise no one is being edified. God is not being manifested. But, verse 24, in contrast, he says, but if all prophesy and there come in one that believes not, an unbeliever, or one unlearned, then he is convinced of all and he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest or exposed, so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Now contrast tongues with prophecy. You have something very similar to what's taking place right now. Someone is sharing from the Bible or someone is speaking, testifying about something that God did in their life during that week. Or they're expounding on a passage of scripture and going through and giving the meaning and applying it to a life. And in the meanwhile of that, there are illustrations and explanations coming out that are reaching into people's hearts and situations that are there present in the audience that have no relationship at all with the person that is speaking. And somehow, in a mysterious way that only God knows, he is moving through those words and reaching into the life of the person that's listening and doing something there that nobody in the room knows is happening except for the Spirit of God and that individual that's there. And that person is saying, how does that person know that that's what's going on in my life? Or who does know what's going on in my life so well that that person could even be addressing those scriptures written that many years ago in that way that it applies so perfectly into my life? And they realize there's something more going on here. I remember uh, about a year, maybe it was two years ago, now at this point on a Wednesday night, uh, just sharing in the word of God. In fact, uh, the young woman is here tonight. I hope she's not embarrassed with me sharing the story. But she was here for the first time. And as I, I gave the message, and at the end of the message, I prayed, and then I gave an altar call, which uh, very infrequently uh, will I do that. But on that particular night, I gave an altar call. And in and, and, and pleading with any unbeliever that might be here to give their life to Christ, I say, listen, he loves you. He is for you. He has come to you. And he does not require that you come to him with bloodied knees climbing up stone staircases and seeking him in some uh, crazy way. And then moved on with the altar call and, and finished the night. Nobody came forward that night. That's an extremely vulnerable position for a, a speaker to be in. But uh, nevertheless, it happened. But after the service, I was approached by a young woman. And, and she came up to me and she introduced herself. And then she uh, lifted up the, the very loose pants that she was wearing. And she exposed that both of her knees were uh, bandaged up. And she said, um, you don't know this, but today I was walking in my house and I slipped. And I fell and smashed both of my knees on the stairs coming up to the house. And I thought, God, why would this happen to me? And God used those words that were unprepared and unthought of beforehand to do something in the heart of a person that was here for the first time to let them know that he was with them and that he was hearing and that he was involved in even the smallest details of their life. And so that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that, that listen, he says, the secrets of the heart can be made manifest and so thus falling down on his face, he will worship God and report then that God is in you of truth. Only God could know what I needed to hear and communicate it to me in the way that it was communicated to me tonight. I want you to take notice. This is a little bit parenthetical, but notice it, what it says there about falling on his face. You will never find one instance in the Bible where in a worship service or when someone is uh, touched by salvation or filled with God's Holy Spirit that they in any way fall backwards under the influence of the Holy Spirit. An exercise that might be known in some church circles as being slain in the Spirit. The only time that anyone in the Bible falls backwards in the presence of the Lord is in John chapter 18, verse 5, when the soldiers approached Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And it says that they fell down backwards. 
They were not believers coming for the sake of being saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. (laughs) They were blown away by the power of God in that instant. We're going to read a verse in a few minutes that says that God is not the author of confusion, but the author of peace. And any time in the Bible you find someone falling down before God because they're overwhelmed by his greatness, they are always falling forward. And the reason why they're falling forward is because they are in perfect control of their faculties. You have knees, you have hands, you have muscle control when you fall forward. And thus God is the author of peace. So falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. So concerning the Christian witness, it is imperative uh, that we understand the difference and exercise ourselves accordingly between the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And then beginning in verse 26, Paul gives his final reason why prophecy overrules tongues in a service. And that is for the sake of maintaining God's order. He says, how is it then, brethren, that when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If there's something that's going to happen, make sure it happens for the sake of edifying someone else and not magnifying your own spiritual uh, um, putting forwards. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at most by three. And that by course, one at a time, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, then let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. If it is absolutely essential or if it happens in that moment that God comes upon a person and they receive this gift at the proper orderly time in a service and they speak forth, they are permitted to do so. But if there is no interpreter, then that gift is not to be exercised any longer within that service. There's to be order maintained in the service of God. And we see that God takes that seriously. He says also concerning the prophets, verse 29, let the prophets speak two or three and let the other judge. And if anything be revealed to another that sits by, then let the first hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and that all may be comforted. So there's no limit in terms of exercising of the gift of prophecy because there's sense in it. He says now in verse 32, and I want you to mark this again, it says this, that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And that will do you well to remember that verse because here's what that means. It means that in no way, shape, or form at any time will God take away from you control of your faculties. He will never do something through your body that you are unable to control. You are doing it. Whether it be prophecy that you're speaking forward, you're doing it as you're moved by the Spirit of God, or whether it be a tongue that you're speaking forward. Your eyes don't roll back in your head, and all of a sudden you just start with it and you can't control yourself. No, the Spirit of the prophet always subject to the prophet. I think it works a lot like the way an eagle takes into flight. The difference between an eagle and most other birds is that most birds flap and eagles soar. They simply perch themselves at a high place. They wait for the updraft of wind. Then they spread their wings, step off the perch, and they take flight into soaring. And the exercising of a gift, even the gift of tongues, operates that way. We, by faith, exercise what God is giving to us in that moment. And then we just allow the Spirit of God to carry it forward. But we are always in control. We can start and stop as we please when we exercise the gifts of God. The Spirit of the prophet always subject to the prophet. For God, and here's why, is not the author of confusion, but the author of peace, as in all churches of the saints. There should not be confusion in a church service or in a worship service, but that God is the author of of peace. So on that note, Paul says, verse 34, let your women keep silence in the churches. <laughs> Paul has a sense of humor and God does too, because he said, after that great speech on tongues, I'm going to make you teach this, you know, let me read the whole verse. He says, for it is not, and just so I can dig deeper, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. 
And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Now we read this verse and when we read it, we, 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 we look at it and we say, oh my goodness, like, are we that far off or is the Bible that chauvinistic? Like, what is the deal here? Because I don't care if you're male or female here, you're uncomfortable, you know, when you, when you read these words because of just what it sounds like. Here's, here's what we need to understand about this. In Galatians, and it's Galatians chapter uh, um, 3, verse 28, and I actually think I forgot to write that down for the, uh, the board, but um, in Galatians 3.28, it says that in God's mind, there's absolutely no distinction at all between male and female. That is that when God looks at us in Christ, he sees us in Christ. And that's true whether we're male or female. And so we're one before him. Now, in Corinth, as we've already seen, there were cultural things that were real, not only in Corinth, but throughout the Roman world that if you were to go into a church or a general assembly in those days and you were to see women exercising themselves in gifts of prophecy or of tongues or of teaching the male in that way, that that would have been a huge offense to the culture and to the general audience that was there. Now, that's no longer true in the world that we live in today. In fact, if we walked into a room and we did operate on those parameters, it would have the same effect. People would say, what in the world is wrong with this group of people? How oppressive, how condescending can you be? And it's not the heart of God. And so Paul is in part here dealing with cultural things that were taking place in Rome and in the Roman Empire within those days. And beyond that, I can't explain it. But Paul ratifies what he says according to the word of God in the next verse by saying what? Verse 36 Came the word of God out from you or came it unto you only? In other words, we don't judge what God says. We just receive it or we choose to deny it. We understand that God moves in an assembly like this, in the culture that we live in, in the parameters of the culture that we live in, to the same magnitude that he would in those days. And so uh, beyond that, but it has to do with the order of God and the keeping of the order of God because he is not the or, or author uh, of confusion. And then he says in verse 37, I wish he had just left verses 34 and 35 and 36 out. I could have done without verses uh, 20 to 22. It would have made my job easier, uh, but they help us uh, nevertheless. But here's what he's getting at um, in, by way of conclusion in verse uh, 37. It says, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, you don't even have to be a prophet to receive this, just uh, acknowledge that you're spiritual, then let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you, that they are the commandments of the Lord. In other words, if someone in some church circle or service, you know, used to exercising these things in a way that is crazy, then they should, if they truly are spiritual, be willing to bring themselves under the submission of this chapter of the Bible and to acknowledge that what God is saying concerning the gift of tongues and how it's to be used and the gift of prophecy and how it's to be used, that these things are uh, being done in the wisdom of God. But in verse 38, he says, if any man be ignorant, then let him be ignorant. Don't get into a fight about it. Don't, don't put it on Facebook. Don't say Pentecostals versus Baptists. We're going to hedge this thing out once and for all. Bring your slings and stones and we're just going to fight this thing to the death. And once and for all, we're going to settle this issue of tongues or no tongues. The last man standing wins. You know, Paul says, don't do that. He says, if anyone wants to be ignorant, then let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, this is why, or in conclusion, he says, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Tongues is ordained by God. It's for his purposes. It is a gift to you and I that we might be able to express ourselves to God in very necessary and very powerful ways. It's not to be forbidden. The key in achieving balance in these things is given to us in the very last verse. It says there two things. It says, first of all, let all things be done. And in the second half, it says, decently and in order. One group of people gravitates to the first half of the verse. They say, let all things be done. And they certainly show that, don't they? 
And then there's another group of people that says, whoa, 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 decently and in order, decently and in order. What God says, let all things be done, but decently and in order. Understand the context and then exercise these things in the place that God has ordained them to be exercised and then let them bear fruit within your life. But let the attitude and position and direction of your heart be the achieving of following after love and doing with your life that which edifies others. And that's the word of the Lord concerning spiritual gifts and manifestations to the church then, and it also is the word to the church now. The worship team can come, and as, as we close, I would encourage you, as we finish not one chapter, but three chapters about spiritual things, that you might just, as we sing this last song here tonight, just whisper in your heart a prayer to God and say, God, if there's a gift or a manifestation or something supernatural that you want to give to me in my life that maybe is beyond my intellect or my understanding or that I've never had or experienced or that I've somehow maybe even placed myself on the outside of because of my church upbringing or things I've experienced in church services, but God, if there's something that you want to give to my life that you know is necessary for me, and my heart is open to you to do what you will within my life. And I can tell you that when the Bible says that he that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself, that there is a necessary and very valuable edification that can come into our prayer life and our devotional time through a gift of tongues or a prayer language that God would give to us. So may God give us all that he has for us. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you not don't just speak things and then leave them to be mysteries, but you explain and demystify and, and give us understanding on topics. And so as we look at this chapter, it interests us greatly, and it sets us at such ease to see that you didn't author something and then just let it run wild, but that you authored it with boundaries and purpose and meaning. And so, Lord, tonight, Lord, not just tongues, but anything that you want to do in our lives, we trust you enough, Lord, that you would have your way to do it. For you know what we need, and we give ourselves completely to you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your promise. And thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand.